Welcome, you're listening to the Granary Young Adults podcast, Unapologetic, a fortnightly podcast where we don't avoid hard conversations, we aim for them. In each episode, we talk about the contentious, taboo and uncomfortable, the topics that no one is speaking about, but everyone is talking about. If you don't want to be challenged, this is not the podcast for you. These aren't sermons or lectures, they're conversations to challenge and activate dialogue as we dig into what God wants to teach us. I'm Rachel Baker, the Young Adults Pastor at the Granary Church. Thanks for listening in, and we hope today's episode challenges and blesses you today. All right, today on our podcast, I'm really excited. We've got two guests talking with us today. We have Matt Stackhouse and Rod Thompson. And um, some of you might have heard from them before. They've come and spoken at some of our Young Adult events. Thanks for joining us today, Matt and Rod. Hey, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Before we launch in, do you mind just maybe sharing with us a bit about who you are, what you do, and how you know each other, just to help us understand why we've got the tag team tonight? Matt can tell you how we know each other because my memory is vague. Rachel, I'm uh, involved in the ministry team at Springwood Presbyterian Churches in the Blue Mountains of Sydney and have been for six years or so now. And I also work with Christian schools in uh, educational uh, curriculum writing, teacher training, and that sort of thing, and uh, love the scriptures. And I'm just a sidekick here to uh, hang out with my friend Rod. So when we spoke about it, Rach, I just thought, I just want to do this with people that I enjoy and that know way more than I do. And so, yeah, I, I, I teach at uh, Cessnock St. Phillips and enjoy beautiful year 11 class where I teach English work studies, business and entrepreneurship. And um, that's been my most recent appointment. Prior to that, I've been the chaplain and um, done some theological study. And I, and I uh, run an organization called Heritage Leaders, which is uh, also works in that uh, Christian education space. And Rod and I met about four years ago and where he was speaking at a conference that I was a part of, and we were paired up in a small group. And um, I'd like to think I've become fast friends. Um, and, and so it's a joy to, to discuss uh, things. He, Rod, Rod does some mentoring with me, uh, and I am incredibly grateful for him and his encouragement to me um, to continue wrestling with the scriptures, which I I need to do more and more of. For anybody that's listening and is thinking uh, this sounds a little different, Rod and Matt are in the Blue Mountains um, and I myself am recovering from some laryngitis. So we've got a few um, audio variations than what you might be used to hearing, but um, the amazing Ian will make us sound as lovely as he can. And also if you hear a sneaky uh, accent in the background, I hear that John Addy is also sitting there um, listening in. So that voice is pretty distinct, John. We'll know if you're, <laughs> talking, you're welcome to anytime. Today is our second part of the series of the authority of the Bible, which is um, clearly not something that we can just rush through in a 30, 40 minute podcast. So we've decided to break this topic up. And um, today, Rod and Matt are going to be talking with us about what the Bible's for and a bit about what we do with the content in scripture. So what we started with, Matt and Rod, was some verses, some passages that we thought maybe touched a little bit on what the Bible's even for. And I was just wondering if you sort of wanted to take us through some of what those passages were and what what you get from those. Uh, Rach, um, the passages we've got before us are Hebrews 4.12 to Timothy 3.16.17 and James 1.22. I think all of those three are uh, brilliant. And along with many others, they, they would say to us that what God has said in Scripture is unique in its living power and capacity to change us. It's transformative and to cut into our hearts. So each of these passages were written to people who I think were struggling to continue in their faith, to continue walking with God, uh, were being disobedient perhaps or passive or losing hope and each of the authors is saying look scripture is what will hold you Uh, hebrews 4 it's living it's active god speaks to it it will cut into your heart 
And when you stand before God and give an account, uh, the way you have dealt with scripture in your life is seminal to God's judgment. So Timothy 3, 16, 17 is really important, but 15, the verse before it, uh, scripture makes you wise for salvation in revealing Christ. That's a really important purpose of scripture. It brings you to Jesus. And the word inspired in 3.16 is probably better translated, expired. Uh, God breathed it out. Uh, we, we're thinking about God inspiring it from the textual end, but from the personal end, God gave it. He expired it, and that's really important. So it's, it's again, a living word. It's, there's a person behind scripture and a person speaking through scripture. And James, likewise, the church has become hypocritical. Uh, Christians in that first century have become listeners and not doers. And so scripture is really important, I think, to shape obedience and faith and hope and love and also to prepare accountability uh, when we stand before God. God didn't only speak it out. He continues to speak into and out of it as a living author. Um, so it's a dynamic thing. And uh, we, we need to then not just read it as mere history but as the living word of the living God to which God still speaks. Yeah, that's good. And I think you can't read any of those passages and um, just be a passive reader. They all have to do with the change in our heart and what happens to us when we're actually open to what Scripture is saying to us and willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, and Hebrews 4, of course, is fundamentally speaking about what we call the Old Testament, probably better referred to as the Hebrew Scriptures, the Word of God is living and active, is speaking about Leviticus or Nahum or uh, Proverbs. Uh, it is saying that uh, texts such as uh, Levitical texts about mildew and mould and leprosy, uh, these are living and active texts too. Uh, so we're not, we're not able to leave some in and some out you know, we, we will go to well-known and encouraging texts in the Proverbs or in Deuteronomy, but there's much of Scripture that we don't find initially incisive, like a genealogy, for example, a list of names, but that's got to be included in what Hebrews is talking about. So we then end up, I think, with a, with a very holistic view that we've got to read all of Scripture, and some of that is quite difficult to read and not immediately applicable to my daily challenges. Matt, if I were to say to you, just phrase the question, what is the Bible for? What would spring to mind? What would you say to that? I think the first thing I would say is who's asking? The question that you mentioned at the beginning about the authority of the Bible. You know, I don't know about you or many others, but I don't have people lining up to ask me what I think the Bible is authoritative for or what authority it has, partly because so many want to avoid it, and also because it's so mysterious in so many ways. And I think Rod and I were speaking that our hope in doing podcasts like this is first to inspire people to, yes, the Bible is complex, and yes, you can spend your life reading it and never fully understand it, but it is, it is, a, it is captivating, and it is for us, and it is accessible insofar as we're ready to do some work with it. And um, I'm just far more reluctant now, I think, to give answers that would stop people from investigating it themselves and say that when someone is asking about the authority, I, I think what they might be asking is, why should I read it? What reason do I have to read it instead of looking at TikTok or hanging out with friends? And, and inevitably, we, we have time in our day to choose what we want to do with it. And I guess I would say that the Bible's authority for a huge part for, for me is it works. It tells me about God and it tells me about me. It actually has insight into me. And so Roger said it's transformative. Well, it has to be insofar as it shows me stuff about myself I, I would never otherwise want to look at, certainly not talk about, and so if I'm willing to be challenged and, and open and humbled and by the mystery, then it has absolute power and authority over our lives. And I think what it's for is for teaching us about the nature of God and the nature of us in our time, because it's alive, because it's, it's not an archaic text, although it's old and it's a, it's a part of antiquity. It is living, it is real, 
you only have to read Proverbs 8, I read Proverbs this morning and thought, how on earth is a text so old and so knife-sharp accurate about my need for wisdom and my propensity to be foolish or to whatever? I mean, the pages that the scriptures are filled with it. And so those three passages that Rod's just said are totally applicable. And I think of James one twenty two. James is a frightening book to read. I can see why people might want to avoid it because it's so just cuts through all the, the jargon and tells us that our hearts and our tongues uh, can, you know, what is it, steer ships and light fires and burn, burn things down. And, oh, my goodness, it's, it's true. So if, I, if I'm curious as to what the Bible's for, then that, that's a really good question to approach it with and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let it do, do some work in me as I allow it to infuse my imagination. I think we live in a time where everybody has an opinion and has a platform to share their thoughts and opinions on whatever it is that they want to share. And sometimes that noise can be so loud that without going straight to scripture and um, turning off the rest of the noise, there's no way to actually pick between sometimes what seems right and what seems wrong. And I think sometimes we can even get wrong something that we thought we knew of scripture and without reading it for ourselves um, and interacting with it, it can be really hard to do the right thing based on just preconceived ideas or our worldview or what some other people have told us about it. So I really think that personal responsibility to get into the the, the word is um, crucial, really, for our faith. I like that Matt used the word authoritative. That comes from the idea of being authored. Authority comes from a person who authors things. And the Bible has authority unlike any other text. So its authority for us contends with the secondary authority of cultural voices and other voices. And often we'll find the voice of Scripture, the voice of God in Scripture, the authority there, uh, contending with um, cultural authority through advertising or entertainment or political or educational voices. So when we read Scripture, we're always going to come up against, I think, a tension of uh, whose voice are we going to allow to be our authority. And that means that we're going to be living counter-culturally because we're not allowing cultural voices to have final authority. We're going to question them and seek to swim against the tides. Romans 12 talks about not being shaped by the world or being swept along by the world, but swimming against the tide takes more work. So to be a Christian in law or a Christian in technology or a Christian parent means there's more work to be done to seek God's authority over my action. And James and Hebrews and Timothy, I think, see the churches struggling with that even in the first century, and we're certainly struggling with it in new ways, but also in, in, in ways that humans have always struggled. So the scripture is uniquely authoritative for its purpose, which is to reveal to us God in Christ uh, and then for us to be faithful disciples in our time and place. That's good. And it's encouraging to hear that it's not a problem that we're facing for the first time alone, that this is something that we've all needed to be sort of reminded of and, and keep coming back to, to Scripture. So, As we sort of delve into Scripture itself, um, so now we've uh, established we need to get into the Word. It's important. It's got that authoritative um, position. We've got stories in the Bible when you read them, like you mentioned, James can be a hard book to read. What about some of the other parts of scripture that are really difficult to hear? So stories about like incest and discrimination, slavery, a lot of the instruction and content can, can seem archaic. You, you mentioned that as well, or not socially relevant to us. How do we justify those scriptures, especially when people sometimes will throw those at us to sort of get us off course? And I think Deuteronomy is an interesting book from that regard because Richard Dawkins um, uses Deuteronomy to beat Christians with and sort of says, look, here's a text which encourages you to kill your best friend if your best friend is an idolater or even your son or daughter. You've got to report them and they'll be put to death whereas Christians use Deuteronomy to find the Ten Commandments uh, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. So it depends which part of a text you're allowing to shape you. But I, I think the New Atheists and Richard Dawkins, as an example, 
haven't understood the relationship of a book like Deuteronomy to Jesus and the relationship of the Hebrew Scriptures to what we call the New Testament. So it's an unfolding text. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why we read those difficult stories, uh, think of Sodom and Gomorrah or think of Tamar or think of uh, Ruth and Boaz or Esther and Mordecai, a couple of reasons why we read those difficult stories. One is to make us long for Jesus. We're disappointed so many times as we read through the Hebrew Scriptures with human behaviour, but also the severity of God's judgement. And as we read, it's meant to beat us around a bit, actually, so that by the time we get to the crucifixion of Jesus, we're going, uh, this is so radical. This is incredibly transformative. Finally, a son of David who is going to do something about the power of sin and Satan and death and the human heart and how surprising it is what Jesus actually does. But one thing I think is, is to make us long for Jesus. A second one, I think, is to teach us about the incredible difficulty of human sin for God's covenant-making love. God made a covenant with people who are reprehensible. Uh, in Genesis 6, God is weeping about the state of humanity. So when we read the Bible uh, and those Hebrew scriptures stories particularly, we're going to understand something of holiness we're going to understand something of the incredible damage humanity has done to itself, such that our prayer every morning ought to be, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the overwhelming response of our hearts is thankfulness. The reading those stories is preparatory to uh, Jesus. And uh, if we don't read them, we won't understand Jesus, and then we won't understand discipleship. Uh, so it, it's incredibly important that we linger in those stories and then learn to lament as well as celebrate, uh, to weep as well as sing, uh, to wait as well as be urgent, uh, and then to love Jesus because of what he does to change a dire situation from Genesis 3 to the end of Malachi. Um, so that's, I, I don't love those stories, but I find them compelling Um, into the human condition and the need of the world for a remarkable saviour who finally we meet in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and the New Testament epistles. Uh, You know, we're we're in a quick fix, uh, rushing world and we don't want to do that work of waiting and and hoping and praying and lamenting. Uh, But in many countries, um, not as wealthy as Australia, that's what much of life is. childbirth and early death, disease that can't be solved, uh, poverty, endemic hunger. Um, much of the world needs to hear the Hebrew Scriptures again. And, and we're, we've been fooled, I think, into a consumerist optimism in a country like Australia, and the Hebrew Scriptures will challenge that at every level as we move towards Jesus. I love that picture, just bringing that back to what happened on the cross. And I think, like you mentioned, sometimes our circumstances and, and seeing the world around us and the response to sin can feel a little bit hopeless at times, the way that things are sort of trekking. But to have examples similar or, um, you know, at least depth of challenge that is relatable in those Hebrew scriptures and then seeing just the amazing mercy and grace that. Jesus gives us is so encouraging, but you have to look at it as a as a whole story, right? Instead of and when when Jesus speaks of himself, he often compares himself with Hebrew scripture figures such as Solomon, Jonah, Lot, uh, Abram, Moses. Uh, Hebrews eleven is really important in that regard. They're all witnesses to the to the author and perfecter of our faith, but all of those figures are so flawed. And Jesus, uh, I was reading it today. He says. Something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, son of David, but Lord of David. Uh, he's so remarkable. But you don't get that if you don't linger in the Hebrew Scripture texts and, and feel the, the disappointment and at times fury of the behaviour of Israel, its prophets, kings and priests. It's meant to unsettle us, but we don't like being unsettled, so we've stopped reading a fair bit of that stuff. I'm always reminded of um, in Judges where they talk about that there was no king. And it just keeps talking about all these things that keep happening and the poor choices that they make. And then, but there was no king in Israel. And 
that just the way that we uh, think that we can handle these things ourselves. Yeah, it's a good reminder of, of how much we need Jesus. But many times in the Hebrew Scriptures, Israel's behaviour is worse than uh, the nations around it, worse than Egypt, worse than the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and worse than the Canaanites. And what happens in Judges is worse than uh, nations who know nothing of God. And so when we read those stories, we rightly weep, but we also rightly uh, find remarkable the patience and love of God who doesn't give up on Israel. And so the phrase is often used in Scripture that the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And Israel and its leaders deserve to be cast off. Think of the prophet Hosea's story. But God doesn't cast them off and he doesn't cast off humanity. But the way he deals with it, finally through Jesus and the crucifixion, resurrection accounts, is so remarkable as to sit us down in the silence and all we can do is give thanks and then obey the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Uh, We've watered down Jesus badly by ceasing to read the tough stories uh, of Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, that's good. I think that um, archaic, not socially relevant argument falls flat, doesn't it, when when you look at it? Jesus grew up reading those scriptures as a young Jewish boy. Uh, He memorised and sang those psalms. So we read and listen to scripture to know Jesus, who we love. And, I mean, Jesus, in one sense, is archaic, and many centuries have passed now since his life. But, of course, he's a living God who's ruling uh, in the 21st century. So in that sense, certainly not archaic, very much present ruler. And powers and authorities, uh, angels and demons, uh, governments and rulers, must bow to Jesus, who is the only incorruptible power in the world's history. He will not be corrupted by power, and he is indestructible. The Daniel 7 is an incredibly important passage, very influential for the first century church and in the centuries before Jesus came to life, and certainly for Jesus himself, Daniel 7, really important, King of kings, Lord of lords. Uh, His kingdom will never end. We've lost the wonder you know, Jesus is my boyfriend type stuff, comes out of a paucity of reading the Hebrew Scriptures. I think we could wrap, wrap it up there. I, uh, I don't need to say much. <laughs> well, I'll ask you then, um, Matt, if that sort of talks to some of the difficult stories that we hear, what about the stories that are um, could be argued are just, they sound like fairy tales, you know, living in the belly of a fish, being visited by angels, animals bringing you, bringing food to the prophets in the wilderness, are we meant to believe that all the stories in the Bible are true? I've met people that, that will say in, in very certain terms that, of course, it's true. And if there's time, then we sit down and I get to say, tell me what you mean by that. Because we, we do have to put our reality on a shelf if we are going to, especially kind of with any sort of vitriol, say the scriptures are true and boy, don't we wish everyone else saw how easy it is to accept that. And I just say, well, all right, let's, let's read it and see and ask, um, all right, do you think that the story of Adam and Eve, that this is an actual live talking snake? Now, what's beautiful about that question is that it, it can be, if people aren't afraid to say, oh, no, I'm not really sure, then you can have a really good conversation. And I think when I think of my, my first kind of exposure to the scriptures. I knew very little kind of growing up. I became a Christian in my late teens and then like just signed up for Bible college because it was just going to be such a really wonderful, immersive experience in the scriptures. And it was, but I found myself going, what do I believe about this? I cannot just say, yes, that's what Noah did or Jonah did, or, you know, I I have to rest, I had to wrestle with it. And the way that anyone is going to have to wrestle with it is is by knowing what the intent of the author was, what was going on at the time, what are they writing into, and what I suppose guidelines were they even governed by. To say that we need to take the Bible literally, on one sense, is admirable because we want to honor the God we believe that wrote it. But on another sense, it's madness because we're approaching it with our 21st century eyes and not giving weight to what the scriptures are in different genres. There's wisdom literature, there's, there's, there's poetic literature, there's allegory, there's, and there's the intention of the author. 
who was not thinking of us in 2021 with our empirical thinking of when they wrote what they wrote, whether it was the Old or New Testament. And I think there may be some out there that will think, oh, that's just a cop out. You don't really believe the scriptures. Well, what I would say to that is, I actually think that when you allow for the genres to, you understand what different genres are, then that actually gives depth to the scriptures that a literal reading stops you from understanding. It, it actually stops you from going any deeper, I suppose, than, um, yep, it had to be a literal snake in a tree, it was an apple. And that's, I, that, I think, is actually um, keeps us in this real shallow place where our faith, I think, being very fragile, because you only need a Richard Dawkins to come along and then use Deuteronomy against us. How do we know then, if we hold some text lightly and say, maybe this was poetry or a device to describe something and maybe not a literal translation, how, how are we supposed to know the difference between that and where it is a literal translation and we're being told or commanded to do something and we say, oh, maybe I'll ignore that bit because maybe they didn't mean it. I think it's always meant. Um, so the author of the scripture um, communicates in vastly different ways in vastly different books. A first century Greco-Roman letter, for example, like Philippians, uh, is very different to an ancient historical writing or wisdom writing. Song of Songs, for example, most people now understand as a compilation of poetry where and how those poems begin and end uh, is debated. But if it's 27 poems collated, that's a very different reading of the book than perhaps a, a prophet um, as Isaiah. But every text has a viewpoint and an author, and every text has a literary shape to it. We've been bland, I think, in, in wanting to read scripture as scientific, accurate history rather than what it is, I think. It's theological history. It's a history which reveals God's purposes, uh, God's plans, God's person in the world of the day. So Genesis 1 is a great example. We've argued uh, as Christians forever about the literalness of the creation story. But Genesis 1 is poetry, uh, and it has repeated patterns uh, which are quite clear so we've got to read it, if we're going to read it faithfully, we've got to read it in keeping with the kind of literature it is. That's not to lessen its authority. It's simply to honour the fact that it has a long oral history, uh, then it has a particular uh, genre in being written down and passed on, and its fundamental purpose is to re reveal to us what God's up to in the world that he loves and is, is saving. So it's, it's all meant uh, none of it is less authoritative than the other. Uh, the book of Esther is a good example. The name of the Lord not found at all in the book of Esther. Most commentators now think Esther is written uh, like a farce or uh, sometimes described as carnivalesque. It's hugely exaggerated to mock the Persian Empire, to make the Persian Empress a bigger fool than perhaps he actually is, uh, to make people laugh, uh, to have a party at Purim at the Feast of Purim, which in the Jewish calendar precedes Passover by just a few weeks. And, and so here's this, uh, this book, which, it, which is, creates laughter and uh, is for children as well as for adults, uh, which is a particular kind of history. So we need to do more work, I think, in reading the scriptures well. And uh, I, would, I would encourage people to, to put aside their, their pursuit for neutral, objective enlightenment kind of certainty and start listening to scripture or reading scripture and it's great to read it out aloud and to read it to each other rather than just read it in our heads as the kind of history that it actually is which is god revealing god's self in ancient times to another culture than our own it's translated and the closer we can get to the world in which it was written the more likely we are to appreciate its authority the kind of witness it is to God's action. I think for anybody that is asked a question like, do you really believe this bit of the Bible? It's permission granted to say it's a really deep book with lots still left for us to learn. Um, like you touched on that mystery component and it's such an important deep book that it doesn't 
we can't answer it in one sentence. Recently, Christians have been rightly saying that when a young person comes to Christ and puts their faith in the Lord, asking them to read scripture is probably asking them to read the most difficult book that they will ever be asked to read. Ancient literature, translated, a compilation, a library of books. Uh, And so reading scripture needs to be done in community, uh, young and old together with plenty of time and space for doubt and question and prayer in the community, not just of of, uh, other humans, but also of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. So it's a It's a relational reading into which we enter. It's a prayerful dialogue with the author of Scripture who still speaks. So we wanted, I think, a neutral answers to questions type book or eternal principles that we can dig out and then apply without too much thought. That's not what we have. We actually have a story, an invitation into the world in which God revealed himself. And now we need to do the work of bringing that story to the story of the 21st century and having a dialogue between culture and scripture. So there's there's some good work to be done there. It is hard work at times and at times it's playful work, uh, but it is work. This is going to sound like a plug, but the granary has been sort of using a model called the BDC, building a discipling culture. And something that I really want for the young adults ministry is to be pairing up young adults with older generations to read, see and read the Bible out loud together and, and to grapple with it. I love BDC. That's great. And the word grapple is good as well. You know, Proverbs says it, uh, Job says it as well. Human beings are prepared to go to vast lengths to find gold and dig for silver and mine minerals. What are we prepared to do to get wisdom from God? Uh, and the ancient writers said not much, and it, <laughs> in many ways not much has changed. We, we just want answers to questions. We don't want to do the work of character formation, uh, wondrous waiting, dialogue with profound text. How many of us read Aristotle or Plato uh, or, you know, Greek philosophy? Scripture is more profound than the greatest philosophical writings so my students used to complain, so we can't understand the words, and I'd say, read with a dictionary. We can't understand it on the first reading. Read it three times. Read it with a pen. Make notes in the margin. Read it with a friend. Stop underestimating the profoundness of the voice of God in text. But who do you think God is anyway? I mean, he's not a, a mindless fact giver. He's a great storyteller who created the universe and has given us scripture. So honouring it is slowing down, uh, reading it in community and uh, seeking the profound wonder of the text. And when we have doubts, asking questions in community. Uh, Think about the book of Revelation, for example. We've very badly neglected it and made it a timetable about the end times. It's certainly not that. The imagery, the metaphors, the allegories, the symbols of Revelation are a particular kind of genre, which was very popular in the first century, apocalyptic literature with some differences, and it's very valuable for us to read well. But uh, sadly, we're an impatient culture and uh, we're not really prepared to do the work in relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit and community that needs to be done. I think if we'll dive in, we'll find it wondrous, but we've got to dive in, so what you're doing there at the granary is great. I might just throw out some thoughts because as I drove down here with a good friend, John, we're talking, as I know many are, about the kind of effects that we've seen take place in, in young people's lives and, and people's lives in, generally, in general as we've come out of lockdown and, and some people have loved it and, and think it's been fabulous. And, but I think a good chunk of us have found it really hard. And uh, if I only use the example of my, my students in, in a high school class, their ability to grapple with a text has gone backwards. They've so tied themselves to technology that gives them everything they want in a nanosecond. It's almost eroded the ability to read something twice or three times and then go, what do I think that means? And where do I go if I don't understand a word? So we're reading a novel in English and it's taking possibly twice as long to get through it because I'm trying to keep everyone understanding. And and, and that's a real thing, right? Like if I'm 
really able to spend two hours on TikTok. And I've in that time seen what is the average length, three seconds, four seconds. So, you know, you do the math, right? Literally hundreds of different images, stories, fast, da da da. And then I'm told I should go and read the Bible. It, it just seems less and less relevant. And the work is so much harder that. I do think that there is place for the use of technology to grab our imagination again. So, for example, my, my kind of routine is to listen to a podcast like a Lectio Divina. So it's 10 or 15 minutes where I'm sitting with a text. It's read to me a few times. And then, you know, I'll listen to, say, parts of scripture in the car. And, you know, there's no end to, say, Christian film and things like that. I know a lot of it is pretty bad. <laughs> But it's getting better, and it's getting better because, well, we're living in this time. And so there are programs that, that I think can engage our imagination, our imagination for the purpose of pointing us back to Scripture and doing some work. And uh, look, I, I, I don't know how much hope I have in my, say, my high school class of doing it. But for young adults who, um, you know, if you're sitting here and you're going, like, I totally realize that I'm, I am not, I'm, my reading comprehension level have, may have dropped down a few notches. It's not, it's not too late. There are tools to be able to re-engage and doing it with people is pretty, pretty powerful. I was going to say, please leave us with some hope because it can be hard work. But I think knowing that before you get stuck in too is important that as soon as it does get a little bit tough, don't, don't give it up. You're actually working for something that's very much worth it. I actually love that they've created, what's the, what's the series called? The Chosen. I know some people might have theological differences in how they've approached things or um, comments about things. But what I love about that is it's making it much more accessible to people. And what I think the overwhelming feedback that I've seen from that has been is it got me excited about getting into scripture or it, it sort of led them into it. So I like that you mentioned things like the Lectio 360 and things like that. It's, it's not, um, there's no one way to get started, but I think, yeah, once the ball gets rolling, you just want to learn more and more and it's developing a skill really, isn't it? Yeah, there are, there are skills and practices in reading scripture as there are in reading any kind of text. I think the Chosen and Bible Project videos, for example, are great. As long as they impel us back into scripture and don't replace scripture, sadly, we've We've gone, I think, to believing that Christian discipleship is fundamentally about reading good Christian books by Tozer or popular writers, whoever. Um, fundamentally, it starts with reading Scripture. Those, those writers are great because they, they've immersed themselves in Scripture. So immersion in Scripture can occur in many ways. Memory is really important, I think, and then meditation and prayer from what we've memorised. Uh, I would love to challenge young people not to not just to memorize single verses, but to memorize a book of scripture. Take a year to do that, perhaps to memorize um, something like uh, Philippians or Ephesians uh, might take six months, uh, and then be able to say that to friends, perhaps to memorize it as a group, then to use it in prayer and reflection. Uh, that's not beyond us. Islamic kids do that with the Quran, and uh, we've just. I think we've just stepped aside from a robust discipleship built on Scripture. And, and I might throw in the thought that if the Jesus we believe in is not the Jesus of the Scriptures, then we don't believe in Jesus truly or well. And the only way we can know Jesus is the Spirit speaking through Scripture. Uh, we've got false gospels going around. We call them triumphalistic gospels, consumerist gospels, because and, and the first century church had the same problem. I mean, Paul writes Galatians to the churches in Turkey, as now called, because they had bought into a different gospel. He calls them back to the true Jesus, the true Jesus of covenant, uh, the Jesus of Hebrew scripture. If we don't know Jesus through scripture, we can't know Jesus well. There is no substitute for scripture. We love our praise and worship music. We, we love the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church, but that's none of that is a replacement for scripture. That's all a consequence of biblical immersion. So if scripture is not at the forefront of our faith, it will soon not be truly Christian. This question might be delving a little bit back into sort of how scripture was written, but talking about speakers or writers that 
right on scripture, right on topic. And I think you're right. I think that it's there's a temptation to just read what others have learned um, instead of learning it for ourselves. Is it possible that the Bible is still being written? Like, could these be new um, parts of scripture that should be included? Or has that been finished and we need to be taking everything that is written now about scripture with a bit of a grain of salt? Absolutely, we should. Um, it's a response to scripture now. The canon, the so-called canon or the books of scripture that, that passed the test of authority that the church led by the Holy Spirit over centuries recognised, that canon is closed. And its primary witness is to the person of Jesus. And so one of the, um, the defining distinctions of the, of the scriptures as we have them is that the last books of scripture and amongst those, the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation, were written by apostles or those within apostolic groups who knew Jesus and were eyewitnesses of his life. The texts that we have now are valuable, absolutely, but secondary in authority. They would fit into what we call the traditions or the community of faith, and they're great, but they're not canonical. Uh, So scripture is closed. That means that I can confidently read Genesis through to Revelation, the what we call the 66 books of Scripture, though the Hebrews knew them in in different uh, orders and numbers, as the complete word of God. It's both uh, the words that have been used over the the years, it's both necessary and sufficient. I can't do without Scripture, it's necessary, but I don't need more than Scripture to know Jesus. It's sufficient. So necessary and sufficient is what we have in Scripture and all other writings or responses, films, whatever, are responses to sometimes more or less faithful responses, but they are responses to Scripture and therefore secondary to Scripture. When we are speaking with friends or people that we meet about the Bible, sometimes because we feel that that doesn't fit into the social setting or the social code, which we've kind of touched on, but what I've heard some people ask is, is there a way of sharing the gospel and not bringing the Bible into it. So I've heard it be called post-Bible Christianity. Is that a thing? Well, it's a thing. It's clearly a thing. It's not, <laughs> it's not desirable. <laughs> uh, no, I don't believe so. Because when we share the gospel, we're telling people about Jesus. And as soon as we start talking about Jesus, we're talking about the Jesus of Scripture, to whom the Holy Spirit bears witness. So experiencing Jesus is real. But the Jesus we experience is the Jesus revealed to us in the texts of Scripture. So we're not going to be able to go very far in terms of discipleship uh, if we don't introduce people to the Scriptures. But it depends on who that person is as to where and how we introduce the Scriptures. They've got a Middle Eastern background, for example. Uh, Certainly they should have a look at Matthew. If they're going through grief or sadness, uh, Mark is a book for uh, exploring suffering and lament. Uh, Luke is a is is an introduction to Jesus, which is wonderfully on in terms of the Holy Spirit and community and, and outreach and friendship uh, for somebody who might be lonely or looking looking for a new future. And John is a profound book about Jesus, and um, so it's, we might introduce people to Jesus through a letter like Philippians or Hebrews. But it depends on who that person is as to where they might begin in Scripture. And as soon as they step into Scripture, they're going to start seeing lines uh, from Jesus back to Jonah or Solomon or David or Elijah, and they're going to start making connections and then understanding Jesus more fully. So uh, post-Bible Christians uh, won't be Christians for very long. What do you think, Matt? Well, it just doesn't make sense in any, um, certainly in any traditional society, but any group of people that seek to be identified as something like they hone that right they know they they know their identity in part because they've checked with one another is this right and because we live in a world that emphasizes our individual agency so heavily it's very easy to basically have a caricature of jesus that's cherry-picked from a handful of my favorite bible passages completely taken out of context put up in a, a nice mug or a a wall and and that then there Jesus is is the is the kind of stringing together of these dozen verses that make me feel good and 
Jesus is beautifully sanitized and um, easy to swallow and affirms everything that I want to affirm and agrees with me on a whole range of things that I feel that he should. And he doesn't offend me. And he doesn't do what I don't want him to do. I mean, does that sound, that sound familiar? I mean, and, and I'm saying that knowing full well that I've got that tendency. So it's good to have a habit of reading scripture, even if I don't want to. You like it because my heart's prone to wander. And I think it will be for a while. Like it's, it's been 20 years now, and um, it's still just as prone. So I hope to gather around me friends that will encourage me to, to wrestle with it. And um, yeah, sometimes I've done, I've done that very faithfully, and other times I have not. And, and, um, but to the question of can we rationalize being a post-Bible Christian, there's just no such thing because we don't even know where our bearings are or any foundation with which we would propose that Jesus should be trusted. Like if, if our idea of God isn't on some level beckoning us to fall on our face and worship, then we've really just made God in our own image. Is watering down the gospel just as bad as thinking it's not important? What do you mean? Well, as in kind of what you're talking about, the temptation to sort of find an affirming character that just will um, back us up on our worldview or the things that we sort of want to hear. Is that, is that just as bad as pretending that we don't need the Bible to, to know who God is? I think both have the same end result. I'm not sure that one is better or worse, but the end result is that we can't be incisive or faithful witnesses in our world. We don't need more nominal Christians. We, we actually need more countercultural, faithful witnesses in medicine and law and so forth. I mean, Francis Schaeffer back in the 1980s harangued the church for withdrawing from culture and it, losing uh, influence and impetus because we weren't thinking from the gospel to our cultural practices. So raising radical disciples doesn't look like angry young people. It looks like wise, gracious, forgiving, just-loving, justice-loving young people. And you can't get to that without um, the Jesus of Scripture. I was going to say, Rachel, that the five words I use for the Jesus who's not shaped by the Bible is that he's westernised. He's, he's no longer an, uh, an ancient Jewish uh, rabbi, uh, son of God revealed in ancient times. He's minimised. He's, he's a lone hero rather than a covenant-keeping son of David, seed of Abraham, child of God. He's minimised. Uh, he's sanitised. Uh, he's no longer coming out of a dirty history, which includes Bathsheba and Solomon and David and Manasseh and some horrible people. His own family history is uh, is lamentable. Uh, he's individualised, taken away from the community and covenant uh, of God's people at that time. So that's not the Jesus of Scripture. He's no longer profound. Uh, I've seen che, che Guevara Jesuses and you know, John F. Kennedy Jesuses, uh, John Wayne Jesuses. John Wayne Jesuses. But the biblical Jesus is only known through the Bible. <laughs> well, that's amazing. I feel like I could continue to ask questions and chat for quite a few more hours, but that, you didn't agree to do that. So um, I think we've given Ian a hard enough time trying to contain this within a reasonable podcast time. So I just want to thank you for um, chatting with us today. And I would love to have you guys both back for another topic one time, if you'd uh, agree to that <laughs> um, in the future. I might throw to um, John, if you're listening. Are you, has he been nodding along? Is he? Is he? <laughs> He's just quietly hiding. I just wanted to, I just wanted to hear, um, John, if there's anything that struck you where you thought, oh, I want to say something and I haven't, haven't, haven't been given the opportunity. Do you have anything you want to pipe in with? There is one thing, actually. When you were talking about people asking, is this story true? Did it actually happen? The assumption behind that question is that scientific truth is the highest standard of truth, as if scientific fact is the, the level by which we must judge uh, scriptural truth. And as a scientist, I can speak to that and tell you Scientific fact is not permanent. So, yes, two plus two will always be four, 
But, you know, just as an example, people used to think that ulcers were caused by too much acid. And then it turned out, and that was a fact. That was a scientific fact. And then people find out, well, no, it's a bacterial infection and you can treat it with antibiotics. We thought COVID was respiratory droplets. And now we find out, no, it's aerosol. You know, so scientific truth is not the gold standard of truth. And, and as a Christian, what, what Rod was talking about, the truth that you find in scripture is so much truer, so much deeper, so much longer lasting, uh, and so much more profound than scientific truth. It's truth about who we are, who God is, and who we are in God, with a profundity and a, and a la- everlastingness that you don't see in scientific truth. And so the only thing that came to my mind was when somebody asks whether you know, this story or that story is literally true, you can ask them, are you talking about scientific truth? Or are you talking about a deeper truth? Thank you so much um, to all three of you. And yeah, I, I think this is great. This is an amazing um, second part of this series. And I'm looking forward to um, hearing from you both again. So thank you again. See you, Rachel. Pleasure. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. We hope this has been eye-opening, challenging. And if you disagree with anything we've said, that you're looking to scripture as you prepare your rebuttal. We would love to hear from you if there's anything you interpret differently, feel we've left anything unaddressed, or if you just want to hear more about what we were talking about today. Please share the episode if you found it interesting and subscribe to get notified when new episodes are published. And for more information about the podcast or Granary Young Adults, connect with us on socials at Granary Young Adults. 